the orchestra. Our hearts are filled with praise this morning because you are worthy of our worship and you alone are God. And I pray that you'll reveal yourself, Lord, in greater, greater ways today as we open your word. And I pray, Lord, for all of us who are struggling and suffering, again, all in varying degrees, that we'll be reminded of how great you are, that you're at work in our lives in ways that we cannot see, that you are loving and kind and merciful and all-powerful. So, Lord, I pray that we will learn to trust you more. And, God, I ask that you would help me to simply get out of the way, be your vessel, an instrument of truth into the lives of your people. I pray your word would be received and not only received, but applied into our lives as we leave this place and as we worship you throughout this coming week. So, Lord, speak to us as you have been already. Continue to reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So good to see you today. You can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job. I want to ask you this question. With all that you see in the world around you, you ever look around at the news and, wow, what a wild season we've been walking through in our country. You look at the news. You look at all that's happening. It seems now we have the ability to find the worst things that are happening on the planet and funnel those right into your living room, right? Right to your computer, and the events can be overwhelming. We add that to our own personal lives and all that we're going through in our personal lives. Do you ever feel like evil is winning? Allergies, anybody? I mean, come on. Mosquitoes. I mean, what, what is this? We, we have all kinds of challenges in this life, and many of us are asking the question, God, where are you? It does seem like evil is winning, oftentimes. How can we trust a God who we believe, we truly believe, we come here to proclaim and sing, He is worthy, He's all-powerful, He is loving. But we tend to forget, don't we? I'm guessing one of the reasons you're here this morning is because you want to be reminded again that He is loving, that He's all-powerful in the midst of evil and suffering that you're walking through in these days. So why does God allow evil and suffering? You know that that's a big question around the book of Job, though at its heart, the book is really about worship, by the way, as we'll see a little bit today. We introduced this book last week. The classic question is, is why does God allow evil and suffering? Or maybe, why do bad things happen to good people? We ask on a personal note. Someone noted that's only happened once. That a bad thing happened to a truly good person that Christ alone is good, that none are good. And yet God continues to reveal himself to us even in our suffering, and we're going to see this today. Uh, now, it's one thing to say, not everyone would ask this question this way. Not everyone would claim that there's evil in the world. Are you, are you noticing this? People aren't naming it as evil much anymore. Because that is, think about it, that is a, that's a moral statement, right? That's a biblical statement, if you will. To say that is evil. To proclaim evil, something evil, means that then there is good and bad. There's a moral standard, right? And if you take that long enough, far enough, you're going to say if there is evil, there is good, and that points us to an ultimate good, who is God. And those who are thoughtful enough realize that's where that goes. So we don't hear as much talk about evil in our day. The problem of evil and suffering is such a problem 
that there's a whole area of theology that's called theodicy. And it's the problem of suffering and evil. The, the word literally means, the etymology of the word theos, you, know, you recognize that as God. Uh, DK is the word for justice in the Greek. And the word literally means the justification of God in the presence of evil. It's to say, how can we justify God in the presence of evil? I took a whole course on this in seminary and, and helping us understand how does this come together here. Now, in order to lay the foundation here, I'm going to get a little philosophical. I'm going to go a little Alistair McGrath on you this morning, uh, and then we're going to get to the text. Then we're going to apply, as we always do. Here's an easy way, easier way to understand to lay a foundation. It's called the theistic set in theology. The theistic set um, has three truths that exist that the believer, Christians, this is, by the way, a specifically Christian problem. These three truths. Uh, we know that evil and suffering exist. I'll start there. That is common ground, even for the non-believer. Now, they may not call it evil, but surely there's pain and suffering in the world. Secondly, is this truth that, that God is all-powerful, and then the third is that God is all-loving. So I want to explore each one of these one at a time. The first one, evil, exists. Now, in Eastern religions, you might be surprised, may not be, in Buddhism and Hinduism. So Hinduism, evil exists because of karma. There's this law of reciprocity. In Buddhism, uh, it's, it's, a, you're, it's a blowing out of all desire. So if you ultimately get to that place where you're, you're just releasing all will and desire, you will overcome evil and suffering. Evil is just an illusion. There are even pseudo-Christian cults like the Christian scientist who will tell you, Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the movement, who founded that group would say that evil is just wrong thinking. You need to get in touch with the divine mind of God. It's why some will not even take their kids to the doctor. We just need to get right in our minds. This is an illusion. And you see how dangerous this is to not fully even embrace evil. But let's talk about it. Evil exists. We see it here in the book of Job. Early on we see it. And in fact, I want to lay a foundation again, or intro the book as we dive in. I'll spend just a moment here. We spent a lot of time uh, last week introdu introducing the book. Now, we, we see it this way. The book of Job has been praised uh, throughout history as one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Um, it is narrative on the front end and on the back, and all in between is beautiful Hebrew poetry. Peter Kreeft the theologian calls the book of Job terrifyingly beautiful and beautifully terrifying. The way that it sets up is like a play. Imagine we had two spotlights here on the stage. On one side over here, we have Job living his life in the land of Uz. He's a righteous man. The writer goes to great lengths to point out that he is blameless. He's a good man. In fact, God proclaims that he is. And, it, and throughout, he's proclaimed as righteous and defending his righteousness his goodness so we have job living his life over here and 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 here we see job with a family you can see it there in chapter one he is loving life he is the greatest of all the men in the east meaning he's really the wealthiest man known he it names all of his thousands of animals which are just uh, just uh, images of this man who's incredibly wealthy, but not only is he wealthy, he's righteous, he's a good man, he has children and lots of them. It's one thing to have children, it's another to have children who love you 
and want to be with you. It shows him just feasting and enjoying time with his family, and they love him, and he loves them. And in fact, he offers sacrifice to God every single day, and then he does so after uh, feasting and enjoying time with his family. When they, when they leave, he then sacrifices on their behalf in case they miss something. He wants to be right before God. He knows that God is holy and God is all-powerful. Now, the book of Job is also one of the oldest books in the Bible. Uh, in fact, many think it was during the time of, of Abraham. It, it's, it's way back in Genesis where we find this man, Job. The Hebrew uh, tells us that it's an older version. We see on the other side of the stage a spotlight coming down, and over here we find God and Satan. There's the sons of God who appear, kind of a council before a holy God, and among them is the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. Job is living his life. He has no awareness of what's happening over here. You know this is true in your life. There's a spiritual realm. God is at work in our lives. He's sovereign over all things. He's moving and he's at work, and we don't always see. In fact, I could argue rarely do we see what he really is up to. God is the initiator. In a very mysterious conversation here that is hard to understand, it is the Lord who points out Satan, not Satan. He says, where have you been? I've been roaming the earth. Like it says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8, he's roaming the earth, seeking whom he may destroy. And God essentially says, well, have you considered Job? Job points, I mean, God points him out. And listen to this. God points out Job. He goes through suffering and and all kinds of evil, not because he is evil, but precisely because he's good. God says, what about him? And Satan says, okay, let's, let's check him out. God says he's blameless and upright. And then here's the key. In chapter 1, verse 9, this is the key to the entire book. When I saw this, verse became the portal into my understanding of this book. The book came alive. The question is asked by Satan, does Job fear God for no reason? He's implying that, God, that Job worships God because of all that God's done for him. No wonder he worships you. Look at how blessed he is. He has a wonderful family. He has his health. He has all of these things you've given him. No wonder he worships you. Friends, listen, there's so many levels underneath this question. What he's asking him is this. Does Job worship God because of all that God's done for him, or does he worship God simply because he's God? How would we know? There's only one way, right? How would we know if you worship God? because of all the blessings he's given you or, or what things he hasn't you know, brought into your life, calamity and all kinds of troubles or health issues. You, we, we, God, I'm going to continue to worship you. Even we enter into a worship of reciprocity. God's been so good to me, I praise you. How would you know if you worship God because of all he's done for you or simply because he's God? There's only one way. And we see it here. Take everything away then we'll know. And watch this. God is orchestrating all of this. The question must be asked, is God at work in our suffering and in our pain? And we, we've sung about it intentionally this morning. 
all to his glory. That's exactly what's happening here. And I would say this, unlike any book in, in the Bible, this confronts, attacks the prosperity gospel more than any book in the Bible. I could name prosperity gospel preachers. What would they do with the book of Job? You don't hear them preach it. It's not preached because it doesn't fit in the framework of God, I worship you, therefore you must bless me. Because if we worship God for all that he has done for us or might do for us, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping him, if you will, as a means towards another end, and that end is what we are worshiping. That's the end goal. I become my own God. God must respond to me. And I think all of us tend to go this way. And it's why we struggle so much in the midst of our suffering. So watch this. Evil exists, and we see three types of evil theologians talk about, and we see them all right here in the first chapter. There's moral evil, and we see it in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. All of his servants are strike down, struck down. A servant comes and says, this has happened. The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Sabaeans have come. This, this group of a gang comes after him. Then, then the Chaldeans come. And they've wiped him out. They've taken all of his wealth. And then there are natural evils in the world. There's fire that comes down from heaven. There seems to be a tornado or some kind of natural disaster that takes out the house that falls upon his family, and they're all killed, save his wife alone, who you may know doesn't help him a whole, whole lot as we move forward. But she's lost a lot as well. And then there's gratuitous evil, we call it, meaningless, seemingly meaningless evil. And from Joe's perspective, it seems that that's all of it. But I'd ask the question that we must wrestle with, in God's economy, is there such thing as gratuitous evil and suffering? Is there such thing as meaningless suffering? So evil exists. This is the first part of the theistic set. The second is God is all-powerful. If he's all-powerful, he would be able to stop evil and suffering. The third, God is all-loving. If he is, he would want to stop evil and suffering, we think. There is the problem. Now, this is called the theistic set because the atheist has no problem with this. Uh, the there's no purpose in life if you're an atheist. That's the only way this goes. And so there would be no purpose in pain and suffering. So there's no, there's no question around this. It must be something about natural selection or weeding out the weak. But because we cannot deny evil, uh, we must somehow, we think, exonerate God in the midst of it. So people run one of two ways. He's either not all-powerful or he's not all-good. Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, said it this way. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can but does not want to. If he wants to, but cannot, he's impotent. If he can, but does not want to, he's wicked. If God can abolish evil, and God really wants to do it, why is there evil in the world? Now, many of us are asking this question, have asked this question, on a deeply personal level. Let's get out from the 30,000 philosophical view, 30,000-foot view, and get to the heart of our own lives. You've experienced suffering in your life. 
you've experienced evil in your life. Why the death of a child? Why a miscarriage? I've sat, you can imagine in my work, I've sat with a weeping couple holding their stillborn twins. I've, I've, I've gone to the door, the front door of, of a member's house to let them know that their loved one has died in a sudden accident. I've gone to, tell, to confront a man with other men to say, we know what you're up to. You're cheating on your wife and you're destroying your family and your life. Why does... Why does a cheating spouse leave a family and children? Why is it that there is domestic abuse and violence? Why murder? Why, why would a child come down with cancer? Why would anyone? Challenges of, of very personal, deep challenges of mental health, and many of us wrestle with anxiety and depression and despair. Let's talk about the problem of evil and suffering. And let's ask three questions. I'm going to eliminate the fact that evil exists. We all know it and experience it. That's my point through those questions you're thinking about your own struggles. But let's ask three questions. The first one, is God all-powerful? I want us to wrestle with this. And, and this is one where Job really doesn't wrestle with this question. I want you to turn to Job chapter 9. I want you to see uh, how he... I could have gone anywhere, but I want you to turn to Job chapter 9 because here we see a passage where he proclaims that God is all-powerful. He does so throughout. In chapter 9, he's responding to Bildad, one of his friends, who has noted what other friends of his have say, will say, Behold, God will, will not reject the blameless man. You must have done something wrong. This is the message from his, the only theological framework they had. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is, it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's, he is beyond our understanding. He's great and mighty. He is all-wise, all-powerful. Verse 4, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. He's all-powerful. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Then he goes on to say he's removed, he removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He, he puts stars out in the heavens. He's stretched them out. And in, in chapter 38, you might know that when we're going to get there, that, that God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He says, where were you when I created the world? And he just kind of blows his mind and blows our minds, taking him all around the universe to say, I am all-powerful. There are things you don't know about me because I'm beyond your understanding. Job concedes, and he says, God is all-powerful. He doesn't question that one. But I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Do you believe that he can take anything that happens in your life and turn it into good? I'd ask the question this way, because this question helped me many years ago as I sought to understand this more fully. Can God, I'd frame it this way, can God do anything? That's another way to ask the question. Can God do anything? The old proverbial question is, can he create a rock so big he can't move it? Can he create two mountains beside each other, peaks, with no valley in between? 
Here's the point. God can do anything that can be done. See, that's illogical. Here's my point. Can God contradict himself? Can God be both good and evil? Can he be holy and righteous and evil at the same time? Muslim theology tends to run that way. But not the God of the Bible. See, here's the point. How about this question? Can God create a world in which we are significantly free to choose to love him or not love him, to worship him or choose not to worship him, where evil and suffering do not exist? I would argue evidently not. If so, he would have created a better world. We live in the best world where we can choose to love him or not because watch this, true love is chosen love. And in that brilliant quote that Stephen placed right there at the front of our worship guide from C.S. Lewis, if you see our, our choice for evil leads us down one path, but that gives us a choice for worship and for good. God cannot sin. He can't do everything. But we can sin. In fact, much pain and suffering in our world is due to our own sin. Think about it. How much of your pain is due to your own sin? More than you know. How much of your pain, or even the pain in your family and the suffering of those around you, is due to your sin? How much of your pain is due to the sins of others? Our sin has far-reaching effects that we don't often think about. If one uses illegal drugs, you're helping uh, support or you're bringing about causing the murder and the pain of the drug cartels along the border. If you look at pornography, you're supporting the sex trafficking of women and children, even men. You're financing an industry. Our, our, our inability or, or our lack of desire to help, our lack of generosity is causing evil in the world. We're going to have an opportunity coming up. Here's a, here's a plug. In the, in the next month, we're going to have opportunity to serve our, our city. We're going to have an opportunity to serve with the partners that we serve with across our city. It's called Serve Dallas. And, and I'm just going to real talk here. You can spend one of these Saturdays We're going to work through our connect groups. You can call our mission office. Get involved. You see it there in the bulletin. You can go and push back the darkness through a choice that you make. We make choices like this every day in our families, in our workplaces, with our friends, in our communities. And the lack of of a passion for others and a desire to push back the darkness is what keeps evil and suffering in our world and in our city. You'll have the opportunity to either sit back, sorry, Watch on a Saturday, watch a college football game, or you could tape it, watch it later. You can go and serve others. We make choices like that all the time, often based on our comfort and security. We push back the darkness as we make, make choices to enter into helping others. So God is all powerful because He's given us a choice to love Him or not to love Him. Is God all loving? Now, this is the second question that I want us to wrestle with because this is the one 
Job almost goes there, but he never does quite go there. But I think we're prone to go here. I think we're prone to most often question the steadfast love of God. Look now at Job chapter 10. Here he's, he's crying out to God. One of the things we see with Job, I love this, he keeps running to God. And I want to challenge you, in the midst of your suffering and pain, don't run away from God. As hard as it can be, run to him. He, he's honest with God. God is big enough for our challenges. Sometimes we want to just crawl up in his lap and let him love us. Other times we want to beat his chest and cry out to him as to why these things are happening. He's big enough for that. Job says, I loathe my life. I hate my life. I despise my life. He speaks honestly. I will give free utterance to my complaint. He's saying, I'm going to speak freely. And God says, bring it on. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. He wants to know why. That's the key question in suffering. Does it seem good? Look at him. He's saying, you're good. Does this seem good and right to, to oppress, to despise the work of your hands? He's saying, namely me, and favor the designs of the wicked. Why are you coming after me? And then look at verse, let's go down to, well, verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me. I'm living, I'm breathing because of you. And now you're going to destroy me. He's saying this doesn't make sense. Look at verse 12. You have granted me life and steadfast love. You are loving and you care for me. Your care has preserved my spirit. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, but you've hidden this part from me. This was part of your purpose, but I didn't know it. So he never really says, God, you're not all-powerful. And he never really says, God, you're not loving. He's just saying, why? Why? Do you ever question God's love for you? Are you doing so now? In these days? Are you questioning that he truly, truly loves you. See, we tend to think, here's our problem, we tend to think that all things loving will be nice and comfortable and make us feel good, right? I remember taking my kids to, uh, to the doctor. You know, Stacy and I would take our twins initially as little babies. We've, we've all done this, right? Take Travis as a little baby, and you, he has to get the, his shots, right? Now, you know what's coming. This is before they can speak, their little chubby legs, you know, or their chubby arms. And they, you know what's coming. You hand the baby over to, to the doctor, to the nurse. You know there's going to be a, a, an incredible uh, scream and a cry. It's going to hurt. And sure enough, the baby would, as if, look at me, the father, look at the mother, look at you and say, why did you hand me over to this person? Right? How could you do this? And we giggle, we laugh. It's terrifying. And I thought you loved me, is this kind of sense. And even if I could explain, and they couldn't, they couldn't speak, they couldn't understand. Even if I could seek to, un to help them understand, they couldn't understand what's happening. But the vaccination might very well save their life. You know why we do this. Because we love them. In the same way, God is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. Could it be that he has a loving purpose in the midst of your suffering and your pain? I promise you he does. 
Friends, don't let go of him. This is what's called the soul-building model of theodicy. He's at work in us. What is he doing? Have you ever noticed that you grow most through your suffering? Have you noticed that in your life? Romans 8, 28 is one that we cling to often, isn't it? And we know that though, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We often stop there. Oh, good, all things will work out in the end. God helps those who help themselves. Most popular verse in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And we often equate good with comfort and security. But we forget verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The, the whole point here, the end purpose here, is that we're to be conformed in the image of Christ. Friends, let me, let me just bring some light to your suffering and pain as you walk into this coming week. If your goal in life is to glorify God, which is the purpose of life, it's why we've sung about it, we've proclaimed His glory. And if your purpose in life is to be conformed into the image of Christ, thus bringing glory to God, then whatever comes your way, you can say there's a purpose in this. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus because of this work. He's at work in my life to the point that Paul even says we can rejoice in that. As, as we read earlier in, in Romans 5, not only that, we had read about the grace and the joy that we have, we can rejoice in hope, but we rejoice in our sufferings because they produce Endurance, and endurance produces character. Character, hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love, you see that? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. We walk through suffering and pain and we see that he is all-powerful. And the cross reminds us that he is all-loving. He loves you. He's at work in your life. 1 John 4 reminds us God is love. It's the very character of who he is. Remember, if you can't see his hand, trust his heart. If you can't see what he's doing, trust that he's good and that he loves you. So because God is all-loving, he's, he's all-powerful, then there must be purpose in our suffering. So we have hope. I love what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Our suffering is connected to future glory. And friends, listen, I believe this. That we will see the purpose in our suffering. And I believe that those who suffer more on this earth will somehow see a greater glory of God in the life to come. Let me ask you this, at the risk of embarrassing my friend. Why would my buddy Benjamin Wagner be born with such medical challenges and struggles? Why would he and his precious family go through untold suffering and misery and surgeries? I'll tell you why. To bring glory to God. That's why. To bring glory to God. 
And he stands before us today and he proclaims the greatness of his God. And we're all moved. And we bow before God. Benjamin, we're inspired by your faith and your family. And we love you and praise God for you. That you've lived your faith in front of us. I trust God more because I know Benjamin Wagner. I love him more because I know the Wagners. God is receiving glory through his life. And he will continue to receive glory. And I believe there's a greater glory coming for Benjamin and his family. We could all long to be like him. Lord, that it would be me. So be encouraged, Wagner family, all of us. If you're facing suffering in your life, remember, Job was chosen not because he was evil, because God trusted him, he's good. He will worship me. And Satan, you will see that he worships me because of who I am. And I will receive glory from his life. And friends, listen, when you walk through pain and suffering, I know this, you don't need an explanation. Not really. We've talked about that today. You don't need a theological framework so much or some, you know, three points and a poem to help you walk through suffering. You know what you need? You need someone who loves you to come alongside you and be there. We're going to see that Job's friends, they didn't help him a lot through their words, but their, their silence was brilliant. When someone in my family is hurting, when Stacy is hurting, or I'm hurting, it happened this week, I go through a hard day, I get home, just hug my wife in silence. That's what I need. I need the incarnational presence of one who will come into my life, who will come close to me, when my children are suffering, they don't need dad to preach three points as to why this is happening. They just need me close. Friends, we just need to be there. And I praise God that we are a loving church. Go out of your way this week to bless someone. Tim Keller writes this in The Reason for God. If we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Jesus knows our pain at the deepest level. One of the most powerful verses, the shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He stepped into our world. Isaiah 53, long before Christ came, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone 
to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whatever your pain, friends, listen, Jesus knows it. He knows what you're walking through. There's no pain that you've ever experienced that Christ himself did not experience. God sees every tear that you've, you've cried. He himself has experienced it. So I end with this final question. Will you trust him? Amazingly, Job does trust him. In fact, his insight is so miraculous. It's spirit-led. Thousands of years before Christ shows up on the scene, Job says this in Job 19, 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And Christ comes and he stands upon the earth. The incarnational presence of God moves among us throughout the book. Job needs a mediator. He needs an arbitrator. He needs someone to adjudicate his claims before God. He needs someone to go between. And Christ comes, and he is our great mediator. He's the one who stands between us and God. You can trust him with your life. You can give him your life. 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, friends. Be encouraged, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying around the body of death of Jesus in, in us so that in us the life of Jesus may also be made manifest. We're going to take on suffering, and we're going to know that Christ himself suffered, and we're going we're to join him in the fellowship of suffering. And through that, we're going to reveal the glory of God as we continue to worship Him. The cross reminds us of God's unconditional love for us. We live in a fallen world. Our bodies are breaking down. And someday they will shut down altogether. And only Christ brings hope in our suffering. Only the cross makes sense of it. Christ alone gives hope in our dying. And even now, as we die to ourselves every day, humiliating ourselves on behalf of others. God receives glory. If we hold on to him in this life that will bring suffering, we will see him. Friends, listen, in the end, Job doesn't get all his answers. And neither will you. He gets something better. He gets God. Isn't that what we want? We want to see God. In Job 42, verse 5 and 6, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. And you're thinking, remember, after he went through all that pain, we're not even out of chapter 1. And he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job wins. Game over. And yet, not until the end, does he say, I'd heard about him, but now I've seen him. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I will be silent, and I will let God do whatever he will do in my life because I want to bring glory to him, even through my suffering. God is all-powerful. He's all-loving in the midst of your pain and suffering. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this powerful word from the book of Job. 
and though evil exists and suffering is constant, we will trust in you because you love us. Lord, we repent of our lack of faith. You are good and you are God. You're loving and all-powerful and remind us, Lord, even now as we proclaim, it is sweet, it is good to trust in you. And we will do so. Friend, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is your day. He has made a way for you. He makes sense of your life, and apart from him, your life has no meaning, no purpose. Surely your suffering makes no sense. Give him your life today. He's died on the cross. He's taken on your sin so that you could be forgiven and be set free and live forgiven. Lord, we give you our lives, and we trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. We thought it'd be great to close with a song that many of you know. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Don't you want to proclaim that to the Lord this morning? After what you've heard today, don't you want to just say it out loud to him? And so that's what I want us to do. We're going to all stand together. Would you do that? Just stand and let's proclaim with our voices. It is sweet to trust in him. Let's encourage each other as we sing. Yes.